Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Genesis chapter 31, Genesis chapter 31. Today I want to take a look at the second part of Jacob's journey, Jacob's journey. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of two things. If you have recently begun to hang out with LifePoint, if you've recently connected with us, I want to invite you next Sunday at 1230 to explore LifePoint. Explore LifePoint, we serve a a, a light lunch. So for us, it'll be a prepackaged and we'll make sure that we are sensitive to those needs um, but we share a little bit of the vision of our church, get to meet some of the leaders of our church. We'd love to have you come next Sunday at 1230. Let us know so we can have food for you. It takes about 45 minutes, and we'll be finished immediately after our third service. As well, our intercessory prayer team. I'm going to take some time in each of the services over the next several weeks just to highlight some of the ministries that we have and some of the ways you can serve because some of these ways we've kind of had to put more on hold publicly and formally, but we're trying to reopen them cautiously and faithfully uh, as we know we need to do. Of course, people have been praying, but our intercessory prayer team maintains an ongoing prayer list that they're interceding for throughout the week. And one of the ways they serve is that we have people in one of our classrooms in each service praying for our service. So right now we have people in a classroom in our facility that's praying for God to work in this service. If you're interested in getting more information or joining that team, let us know and we'll connect you with the leader so you can do that. Okay, let's go to Genesis 31, Jacob's journey part two. I want to talk today about crucifying fear to walk in faith. Crucifying fear to walk in faith. Let me begin by asking a question. I like to set our minds and frame our thinking for what we're talking about today. But do you know how fear has affected your life? Do you know maybe how fear is affecting your life? Now, some of you might be quick to say as an initial reaction, well, fear doesn't really affect me. But listen, friends, if I've learned anything in this season from people, if you say that, it's either you know it's not true you are dead or you're simply delirious, right? I mean, those are really the only three options. To some extent, even if it's just being tempted towards fear, fear has affected us all in many different ways. And what we're going to see today is how it is that fear ruled Jacob such that it overwhelmed and consumed his life to lead him into condemnation. And until he handled it in the right way, the only way fear can be handled it, can be handled rather, he was not able to overcome it. But there's only one way to handle fear, and that's to crucify it. And that's what we'll see today. Here's what I want you to understand today. Fear drives to exhaustion and sinful condemnation, but faith reconciles us to walk with God in his peace and his Love. You know, friends, what we'll see in Jacob's life is the only thing living to try and alleviate your own fears, the only thing that's worse than that is living to try and sustain somebody else's. For Jacob, fear was not so much about what his father in law Laban might do. Now, 
Just so you know where we're at, Jacob has for 20 years now lived with the man that became his father-in-law. He left his parents and he moved from there back to the original place that his family was from so that he could take a wife. When he came to this land, he met Rachel, immediately fell in love with her at the well. He met Laban. He was there for a time, and then he asked for Rachel's hand in marriage. He agreed to serve for seven years to be able to take Rachel's hand in marriage, and he served for those seven years. And then the father Laban gave his daughter's hand in marriage, but on the morning after the wedding, he realized it was Leah. He'd been swindled. And so he goes back to his father or his father-in-law and Laban says, you know what, serve me or finish out the week of consummation. And at the end of that week, I'll give you Rachel as well. And you'll serve me another seven years for that. 14 years. And so at the end of that 14 years, Laban goes back to him. They renegotiate a, a, a strategy to grow the livestock and increase the family wealth. And he serves another six years. So we're talking about 20 plus years he's been with Laban. And he has lived in this constant negotiation or swindling, if you will. But what Jacob feared most was not what his father-in-law might do. But as any self-made individual fears most, he feared what he might not be able to do. You see, for the self-made person, failure is a far greater threat to their pride than fear of defeat. Why? Because it says more about self, leaving no one else to blame. But what we'll see today is driven to exhaustion by his fear. Jacob can take no more of it and he decides he must leave. Now let me introduce this by reading verses 1 through 5 of chapter 31 and then we'll continue. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Let's pause there. Twenty years with his father-in-law, and it's time for Jacob and his end to come. Jacob heard the talk of his brother-in-laws, and he saw, critical word here, he saw that he no longer had favor in Laban's Eyes. And so the Lord speaks to him and he says, Jacob, I want you to return to Canaan, the land of your father, and I will be with you. Now this was hard for Jacob because he knew that returning to the land where he had left meant one thing. He had to face his greatest fear. The reason that Jacob had to leave the land of his father because he had swindled his brother for a second time and his brother had vowed to kill him. So returning meant that he had to face the greatest fear of his life, his brother, and the brokenness of their relationship. Friends, one thing about a sinful past that we must all learn, it never just goes away. 
Problems don't just disappear if we ignore them. And neither does sin. For Jacob, the fear and the angst that he left began to loom large. Larger than it ever had when he considered his return. And what we see in chapter 31 is this stark contrast. If you're, if you're one of those people that like to mark in your Bible, I do this all the time because it helps me to highlight things and connect some of the dots. I want to give you a word to highlight. I want you to highlight the word saw. And I want you to ask, what is it that Jacob began to see that caused some of his fear? And when you highlight what Jacob saw, also, highlight or underline every time you see God telling him, lift up your eyes and see. Because there's a stark contrast between what Jacob saw and what God was calling him to see. One is a life of fear, consumed and overwhelmed by it. The other is a life of faith. You see, faith always lifts our eyes to God to see a different reality than the fear and what fear can never see in life. And so in verses 4 through 16, we see where Jacob takes Rachel and Leah into the field to tell them his plan. He no longer has favor with Laban, but God, he says, had protected him and is now leading him. The interesting thing I find here about this as well is this, that Jacob begins to recognize the work of God in his life. This is not something that he's ever recognized before. He's known that he's been blessed by God and called by God, but he's never recognized the work of God. But coming to the end of himself, he all of a sudden begins to recognize that God is working. And he says, Laban has changed my wages 10 times. But every time the Lord has continued and reminded me to lift up my eyes. So God told Jacob that he had seen all that Laban had done. He reminded him of his promise to him. He reminded him of the vow that Jacob had made to God. And he commanded him to go home. And when he tells this to Rachel and Leah, they agree because they too want to leave. You see, Rachel and Leah, as we saw last week, are so in turmoil over a lack of love from their husband and the bickering and fighting and competition with one another. They simply think maybe if we change our surroundings... What's raging within will improve as well. What I want us to see as we walk through this story today are four facts about fear's influence in us. Four facts about fear's influence in us. And why is it that I say fear's influence in us? Because hear me friends, this is critical to everything we see today. What rules in us determines how everything around us affects us. I'm going to tell you how I'm going to close the service today. I'm going to ask you to acknowledge the things that this season has revealed that have created fear in you. And then I'm going to ask you to confess that the situation, not even a pandemic, has been the source of creating our fear. Only the opportunity to identify it and reveal it. Things from outside of us do not create our fears. What resides within us is where our fears come from. What I'm going to call you to do today is to crucify your fear on the cross of Christ so that faith in God and His Word can live in you so that no matter what comes, 
fear is not what comes out, but faith in how you walk. The first fact about fear that we see today is this. Fear drives by a false narrative that interprets everything according to the center of itself. Fear drives us by a false narrative that interprets everything according to the center self. You see, fear blurs a godly perspective by narrowing us to tunnel vision. You know what tunnel vision is? It's, it's when adrenaline rushes, a response to fear or a response to the suddenness of something that startles us. And it causes everything in our periphery to go blurry so that all of our energy is focused on what is immediately in front of us. And, and this is what fear drives us to do. It drives us to a tunnel vision so that what is seen seems all pervasive. It seems larger and more dominant than it really is, more threatening against us than it would otherwise be. And, and in this tunnel vision, fear begins to inflame within us a paranoia that strips the ability to trust because of what we see. And so that tunnel vision drives us to interpret what we see and it begins to shape the pattern of our thinking, hence paranoia, to think about what we see in the way we see it and not see it in any other way. And that paranoia fuels a narrative that is counter to God that constantly interprets everything going on according to to its storyline or its paranoia. Finally, through that paranoia, it justifies and it rationalizes our actions in accordance with the reality that it has created as we see it instead of trusting what God has said about how he wants us to see him. You see how fear drives us by a false narrative? And listen, friends, the more you listen to that narrative of fear, the more justified you will always make your sin. You will even know it is counter to God's word, but you will remain in justifying it because what you are looking at is fueling how you are thinking about and how you respond to what you are facing. If you want to know where fear is ruling you, listen to the pattern of your thinking in regards to what you are seeing. And if what you hear yourself saying to rationalize or justify your actions, to define or describe what's going on around you, if those things don't align and agree with the word of God, you can know fear is ruling you. Oh, it won't be that evident. No, you'll, you'll be completely at ease with it, except for you won't be at ease. And you'll wonder why everything else is wrong when you know what is right and you keep going after it. But the fact of the matter is, the way you see it is not the way it is. You see, Jacob said this, he's changed my wages 10 times. How long do I have to keep putting up with this? But the wages were only a symptom What Jacob never received is the real problem. And we saw this last week with his wives and how he was destroying them because of the honor he failed to give to them and the way he failed to love them. 
And we also see it in his labors and with his father-in-law, Laban. The real problem with Jacob was that his wages never measured up to the recognition that he thought he was worthy of. He never got waged for what he felt like he had truly accomplished. And now he's got his brother-in-law's trash-talking him. And the stuff that he did have never satisfied him. You see, Jacob was a rich man. But he was enslaved, not by his father-in-law, but by his stuff. And that's not the way he saw it. And that was his problem. Friends, when hope is in self, a lack of recognition of your accomplishment or the threat of the loss of them will always fuel greater fear in you. And that's what's transpiring in Jacob. But he can't hold it anymore. It's overwhelming him. So verse 17 to verse 21, we see Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away his flocks. He took all of his possessions and his family and he sent them away. He said, go in front of me, take care of that, head on back to to Canaan. You see, he knew Laban was out in the field shearing the sheep and this was a good time for him to leave and get a head start without Laban knowing Rachel also knew something. Laban wasn't there and she was able to capitalize on the opportunity to steal the false gods of her, of her father. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But you see, friends, what I want you to see here is God's work done in our own way or our own strength is always a recipe for things that are not good, more condemnation. God doesn't give us something to do. He doesn't command us to do something and then just leave it to us to figure out how to do it. What God commands of us is a revelation of what he wants to do in us and through us. It always begins with faith. It always begins with faith. And so verse 22 through verse 35, it tells us that Laban came home and when he found out, he took some of his own men and he pursued him. I mean, remember, we've got two swindlers that have faced off for 20 years now. You don't think I'm going to let you go that easily, right? So he took off and was in hot pursuit. But in the midst of his chasing down Jacob, after a three-day head start, God appeared to Laban and he said to Laban, you be careful not to say anything to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And so when Laban caught up to him after a few days, he goes and he confronts him. And he says, why did you trick me and why did you take my daughters and not allow me to say bye to my family and to my grandkids and then he threatened him but just before he broke God's command to him he told him instead while I want to take from you God said not to say anything to you either good or bad and then he says to him but you stole my God's my idols. You see, what Laban is doing here is he's pretending to be the man of honor. He's pretending to walk the high road. It's really a high rope that's not got a lot of tension in it, and he's falling off of it because everybody, including Laban, knows he's not the man of honor here. It's simply another argument tactic, a, a tactic of manipulation that he's using. It's the tactic he's used for the last 20 plus years to keep Jacob, and he's thought he's won. But Laban was not trustworthy. You see, friends, God's word was shared to Laban along the way. And what he said to Laban to share 
with Jacob was not in some way to restrict Laban. So I don't want you to see a man who's powerful and who's coming against Jacob and who has every thought of overwhelming him, but only God is restraining him. No, Laban's a coward. Laban's a coward who, who b- believes that his manipulation and his some kind of coercive wisdom is in some way winning the swindling. But that, in fact, is not what's happening. And God is not only restricting him, but more importantly, what Laban said to Jacob was not so much for Laban to be restricted, but Jacob to be emboldened. You see, all of these things that Laban was saying to Jacob were the very narrative that Jacob had been fighting in his mind for 20 years. His fear was fueled every time by his father-in-law when he said, let's negotiate your wages. And two men were faced off in the square, swindling each other to see who could win again. One time this one won, and the next time that when one, but this time when Laban showed up, Jacob's at the end of himself, and all of a sudden he says, I was gonna take you out, but God made me promise that I wouldn't say anything to you that was either good or bad. In that instant, do you know what Jacob heard? Oh. He heard what God had been saying to him. You see, God's word wasn't about restricting Laban. It was about emboldening Jacob. Jacob, what you're doing is right. It's hard and it's going to get harder. But this is the way that I am working. You see, friends, wherever you hear it, God's word is always sent for the power for the one who is walking with him by faith. God's word will never return void. That's a promise you can always trust regardless of what everything around you looks like when you see it. Jacob says he was afraid of how Laban would react. Might keep his daughters or might take all the livestock from me. And this was not unreasonable because obviously Laban had done that. But knowing he didn't take the gods, all of a sudden Jacob becomes a little indignant and said, let me tell you something. If you think I took your gods, I don't want your stupid gods. You look for them and if you find them in our camp, whoever took them, you can take their life to take them back. Well, that's a little brass, Jacob. Because what Jacob doesn't know is that Rachel had taken them. Laban searches everywhere, but he doesn't find them. Here's the second fact about fear I want you to understand today. Fear infects others around us, causing them to sin as it causes us to sin. It infects others. Our fear infects others around us. Rachel lived the last 20 years doing what? Striving for her husband's love, which she never got, was never satisfied with, and competing with her sister, which she just never got an edge up. And listen, friends, for 20 years, that creates an internal strife that's hard to be understood, and yet it's awkwardly familiar You see, Jacob thought all those years he was managing his fear and he was the only one affected by it. But what he couldn't manage was how his fear fueled sin in others. We do not know because we cannot know how it is our fear will affect others, especially those that are closest to us. But what we can know is that it does affect others. Husbands, the way 
that you posture yourself to your wife when you try to get what you want from her without bestowing up on her the cherishment that she, by God's word, is worthy of. You're bestowing that narrative of fear into her. Wives, when you try to regard your husband just to keep peace instead of respecting him as God's word calls you to do, you're managing your fear, but you're infecting others. When you manage your children out of your fear for what might happen, what might come of their life, more than you're leading them to look to Jesus and have faith and walk boldly by that faith and obedience to his word, you are infecting them with your fear. And you see, friends, the insecurity of the relationships, both with Rachel and Leah, but specifically with Rachel here, it left her longing for love, left her longing for acceptance and security in other places. And that was a longing that just had not been salved at all. And so she saw the opportunity of her father out and thought to herself, you know, I'm glad to be leaving but maybe taking a little something to remember it by will be worth it when I'm all alone in a foreign place with foreign people. Sight is a deceptive foundation for understanding, friends. But God always tells the truth. And only faith in His Word can tell us what it is that we really see or do not see. And so we see that When Laban returns, Jacob loses it. I mean, he loses it. Verse 36 of chapter 31 through verses 42. Here's what we begin to see. A life that has been fueled by sin for 20 plus years creates an anger that erupts like a volcano. It cannot be contained. It makes me think of that movie Christmas story. Maybe you haven't seen it. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying I have seen it. And there's one scene where poor little Ralphie, one of the central figures of the movie, has put up with a bully all his life and he can take it no more. And he gets into a moment where the bully gets on the ground and Ralphie gets on top of him and goes into a tirade of hitting him. And he's the whole time going, you said this, you did that, you said this, you did that. And the movie just kind of polarizes around this moment when all of that anger erupts out of poor little Ralphie because he's getting even with the bully. That's what I see in Jacob here. He confronts Laban over the accusation and the search. And then he walks through every offense over the last 20 years. He recounts every way. I have served you. I have profited you. I have protected you. I've absorbed your losses when they should have been yours. And yet, all of this time, spewed it all. He says this, and he's not ended with this before. He says, God is the one who protected me all of these years. Verse 41 and 42, look at what it says. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you for 14 for your daughters, six for your flocks. And if you've changed my wages, you've done it 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. In other words, he's saying, the only reason you treated me with any dignity is because you knew what my daddy would do to you if he found out about it. That's what he said. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. But with no regard for you, 
God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and he rebuked you last night. You see that phrase right there? That phrase is telling us what? That when Laban quoted God to Jacob, Jacob heard the voice that had been calling to him to get out and to walk by faith with me. Listen, listen, friends, it's the voice of God that comes to us through his word that'll cause us to begin to see the things around us with eyes that are different. Why? Because we see different? No, because we've lifted up our eyes and we've begun to look to God to show us those things. The third fact about fear I want you to see today is this. Fear fills us with angst. Fear fills us with anxiety. And fear fills us with anger from exhaustion. Jacob was exhausted because he'd been trying to do all of this in his own strength. And that was his problem. He knew God's promise and he knew God's command from the very beginning. He knew it. But he was exhausted from God's work because he was trying to do it in his own way and in his own strength. You see, friends, fear is a merciless slave master driving one to the end of themselves. But not even exhaustion from our fear, nor the recognition of our fear is sufficient to break it and to relieve us from its hold. You may know that you are living your life out of fear, either in the way you are guarding something or hiding something, or in the way you are proceeding and going about maneuvering in accordance to that fear. But even knowing it and recognizing it is not enough to break its hold over you. It requires more. And the fourth fact about fear I want you to see today is that fear fuels sin because it always works to protect self. And this is what you do when you live in fear. Fear isn't only about what and how you run and hide. It's also about how you build and guard the areas of your life. How you hide the areas of your life. How you ignore certain areas, certain relationships, or certain things or aspects or nuances of relationships or aspects of your life. Why? Because you're afraid to face them. You know Esau is waiting for you. And you're not sure you're ready to face him. You see, friends, fear is as evident in how we spend versus save money as it is in how we stay distanced to guard from hurt because of bad relationships in the past or how we run after and seek love and acceptance from other people or other things because of where we've never found it. That's what Rachel was doing when she went and took the gods. She was trying desperately to find something she had never found. Building and hiding or running in our lives are both equally susceptible to being driven by fear within us. So verses 43 to 55, there's a measure of breakthrough between these two men. It's like an old western. They're in the middle of the streets and and that moment of breakthrough finally comes. Instead of somebody drawing, all of a sudden they both choose. Instead of both of us killing each other, why don't we just form a truce? Why don't we just form a truce? And that's what they do. So Laban gets to say goodbye and Jacob gets to move on. But see, that peace that came at their estimation was superficial at best. Their sin was still hidden. Nobody had confessed it. Nobody had forgiven it. Their animosity among one another was still simmering because no one had sought to bring forgiveness and repentance to the situation. So what did they do? They built a heap of stones A heap of stones that would serve as a witness between them and as a watch post. 
And that heap of stones, again, was what? Something both of them could see. You see, they're they're choosing ways to solve the situation out of things they can do in the way they best see fit. And they said, it's kind of like drawing a line in the sand, except they heap stones up. And they said, every time you see this heap of stones, you'll remind you don't come after me and I'm not coming after you. And they reached a truce by mutual agreement, something they could both see to remind them of their agreement. 20 years of swindling over the most precious, important aspects of life leave both of them exhausted and unable to trust each other. What's really going on in this passage of Scripture, friends? I'll tell you, fear is taking its full effect. It's destroying and it's deceiving. And that is what is being revealed here. That's what's being revealed So we see at the beginning of chapter 32 that Jacob travels and he is met by God's angel. And he recognizes that this person he meets is actually a representative of God. And he knows that it means one thing, that in fact, he will have to face the greatest sin of his life that he's been living under, his swindling that brought him to the point of making his brother want to kill him. And he's going to have to face Esau to bring redemption and reconciliation to that, however God is going to do it. And he has no idea how that's going to transpire but how does he know this the spirit when God works the spirit will always be faithful to show you where you're not walking in faith he had to deal with this he had overcome his own fear but instead he was overcome with fear and anxiety about that so what does he begin to do he begins to make preparations You see, a a man or a woman can't walk with God as long as they are at odds with other people and they remain unrepentant in their sin. God does not walk with us in our sin. He calls to us to come out of our sin and to come to him. And getting right with God always leads one to labor to be right with others. Now granted, friends, you can't control what they're going to do, but you can control what you will do. And you can't make everything right But you can be careful that by God's command, you do what you know is right for you. As a labor, as an effort in a labor to make it right with others. You see, these four facts, they haunt us until fear has no longer its effect in us. And and, and friends, as, as we try to do, fear cannot be managed. And as long as fear remains, it will not allow faith. Faith and fear will not coexist. And fear is not faith, as it will make you think it is, but you will know by the Spirit's conviction that it is not. Fear must be crucified for faith to break through. Briefly, let me look at these three steps that we see with Jacob where he crucifies fear so that it can become faith. Chapter 32, verse 9, we see the first step along this path to crucifying his fear to become faith, he surrenders his all to the Lord. Verse 9, he said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. What is he praying? Jacob is praying the word of God that he has heard back to God. 
He's saying, this is what anchors my faith now. And then verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. Listen to this. Listen, this is where fear breaks. Are you ready? For I fear him. Confession breaks fear. And that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. Friends, fear cannot rule where pride does not remain. Jacob is a man stripped of every aspect of his pride. And here, fear gives way to faith. You know, it's better to start with prayer than to use it as a last resort. But no matter when you get there, make sure that you get all there in prayer. Isolated and on his own, Jacob prays to the Lord. It would be interesting for you to read these verses aside the verses of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he left the disciples and went on a little further on his own and prayed to the Lord, Father, if there is any other way that this cup can pass from me, let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jacob said, God help me. I am afraid of my brother. This prayer is effective for one reason, friends. It's the same reason that every prayer offered to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is effective. Righteousness. That's what James 5 tells us. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. It is only the prayer of the righteous that is faithful and that is effective before God. And what is it that makes us righteous but not ourselves, but he alone who died for us? He confesses his unworthiness of God's love and he surrenders to God's work in God's way. The old hymn, Rock of Ages, tells us, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. Jacob has done all that he knows to do and the whole life he's built now stands divided because of his fear and at the end of himself the Lord has become his only hope but friends when you get to the end of your rope the Lord will always prove sufficient for your hope. Cry out to him for help. He will hear. He will come near. Trust the Savior and his promise. And surrender all to him by obeying his command. Given by his word. The second step is not just to surrender. But secondly to submit your whole life to his way. The Alone is a reality series uh, uh, and, and it, 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 it follows 10 people who are dropped off in the middle of absolutely nowhere, nowhere where a sane person would want to be and they're dropped off alone with only 10 tools like a, a flint rock or a, you know, a hatchet or whatever they've chosen. And in one of the first series, they always do some preliminary interviews. And you can kind of tell how it's going to go by the way they set them up. And this one guy's going, oh, I'm going to kill it, man. I'm going to win the million dollars. I'm, I got this. The first night, they feature him. He gets his makeshift tent set up. It's basically a tarp strapped over. And outside of that tent comes at some point in the night, a bear and a mountain lion. 
And all you hear on the video is him just the narrative of fear that is ruling in his mind. I love my mama. I want her. Where's my family? I'm scared. I mean, he's just going at it. Go back and watch it. You'll enjoy it. He barely makes it to sunrise before he taps out. I'm done. I am not coming back to this place. Why would anybody want to be here? And I agree with him as I get up and go to the fridge to watch the remainder of the episode. Friends, Jacob was alone, but alone he met with God. He was a man exhausted and unable to stop the cycle and the narrative of his fear. And desperate in his wrestling, it tells us, as a man from God came and began to wrestle with Jacob in this time. Verse 22 and following. And it says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said to Jacob, uh, or Jacob, Jacob said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he says, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. He wouldn't let him go. He was fighting with God. But his desire was not to overcome God. His desire was to overcome the very thing that he knew had prevented him from being with God himself. And he would not let go of the man of God until he blessed him because he was out of desperation saying, God, if you don't purge me from all of this, it will come back greater and more than I've ever seen it. Purge it from me and fill me with you, God. You, As he was bruised. And then he was blessed by God. And Jacob wasn't bothered by the bruise. It wasn't even a thought to him because to him, every time he limped, it was the mark of God's blessing on his life. It was the day that he got emptied of himself and got filled with God. And until you come to the end of yourself where fear has driven you and fear has led you and fear is exhausting you, God can't fill you up. Jacob's brokenness was obvious. He limped. And to the world, when we limp, something is wrong. But to Jacob, when he limped, everything was finally right. Finally right. His life was emptied of himself. And it was filled up by God. How often we think if God's going to use me, he's got to heal me. He's got to fix me. Don't tell Joni Erickson Todd of that who has a teenager broke her neck and she's lived her whole life paralyzed and not a bit of it has stymied her witness for God. You see, friends, God redeems us and that doesn't always translate to mean he fixes and heals us. God's not looking for your strength. He's looking for your surrender. He's looking for your submission to him. He doesn't need your ability. He is our ability. God is looking for your availability, not what you can do, but what you will submit your life to let him do in you and through you. You see, Jacob was bruised and he was blessed for righteousness sake. But when he limped away, he was full of joy and peace. 
and didn't even know the limp. Many stay at a safe distance from God because while we want the blessing, we fear the limp. You want God's blessing, but not enough to submit at all. So you submit a little bit. You submit and substitute some areas of life. You say, God, do a work here. And God says, I'm working here. And until you go, okay, your way and not mine. You see, friends, Jesus went alone to the cross to bear the curse of our sin once for own once for all. And alone on the cross, the Father laid on him the curse of our sin so we would no longer have to bear the curse of our sin. God then measures out his grace in order to save us and to sanctify us for his purpose and for his work. That's why there is no fear in love, his word says, but perfect love casts out fear. You may be limping, but you are full of peace. You are full of joy because you are filled with Jesus Christ. Is he enough? The only thing God ever bruises or breaks in us is that which is already killing us. Sin. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, three times I prayed and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, my power is made perfect. Friends, I'm asking you today, are you staying at a safe distance from or are you fully submitting your life to God? The third step along the path is to serve, to obey the Lord's will. Look at verse 1 of chapter 33 and I'll close with this. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. I'm going to tell you something. What he saw was Esau, the very person he'd been running from the last 20 years. But he didn't see him the way he had ever seen him before. Tells us that Esau ran and hugged him and kissed him and they wept. You know why? You know why they wept? I'll tell you why. Because what they were seeing was different than what they had ever seen. And when grace punctures your sin because you've lifted up your eyes to God and it pierces your pride, tears always flow. Dry eyes are pride's strength. Tears flush the heart for Jesus to inhabit it. And he brings peace, peace that transcends everything. Fear drives us to exhaustion and sinful condemnation. But faith reconciles us to walk with God in his peace and his love. Let's pray.